Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. If this is your first time uh, listening or watching a Parker's Pensies episode, yes, I know it's uh, Pensies, but I'm an American swine, and I pronounce it like an American swine. Um, this is a podcast where we talk all sorts of different things, and uh, if you're into philosophy and theology, nature, life, whatever... Um, this is a podcast for you. So I recommend you guys subscribe, uh, leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts uh, and a comment. That would be huge. That would really help out. Um, today I have with me uh, an absolute legend. I have with me Dr. Mark Sainsbury, and we're going to be talking, uh, hopefully we're going to be uh, focusing in on logic, paradoxes, and uh, his work on concepts. But I've been wanting to pick this guy's brain for a long time, so I'll, I'll try and stay on topic here. Um, without further ado, let's just bring him in. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Um, so, Dr. Saints, or Mark, it's, it's going to be hard for me to do that. Um, you, you're a professor of philosophy at the University of Texas. You, you've been in Oxford. You've, you've been all over the map. Um, you're, for me, the, the, the books that I've, that I've uh, been familiar with are Paradoxes, uh, Logical Forms, and then you sent me your, your book, Thinking About Things, in my head, you're you're like a logician, but then also you were uh, you were the um, editor of of Mind for like ten years. Like, how do you describe yourself as a philosopher? Well, I think really just uh, a philosopher of language. Mm. So you can call me a logician, but I have to say I think that's uh, doing me much too much honor uh, because I think of logic as essentially a branch of mathematics. It, it's something yeah. I can't do. I don't have the intellectual capacity for. Mm logic construed in that sort of mathematical way. So if you wanted um, a sense of what logic, properly speaking, as I think of it, properly speaking, is then it's Russell and Whitehead's Principia Mathematica in three volumes, 1910 to 1930, according to Russell, only read in full by eight people in the world. Hmm. Um, the last two, it's in three volumes. The last two volumes are practically nothing but formulae. Um, you know, it's purely formal. So that sort of canonical work in, in logic that's directed at philosophical question, <clears throat> namely whether um, mathematics is logic. So it's, it's not logic done just for the sake of it. It's done with a philosophical purpose, but it's extremely technical yeah. and way beyond me. So there is a, <laughs> there is a notion that people use. It's, it's gone slightly out of fashion recently, I have to say, of philosophical logic, and philosophical logic means we don't have to do much of the technical stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, it's, uh, I've, so I have, I would regard some of the things I've written as belonging to philosophical logic. So that's the study of things like truth and entailment, and um, as, uh, paradoxes. I think falls in the category of, of philosophical, philosophical logic. logic. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so maybe we could call you a, a philosophical uh, logician. There. Uh, do you do you follow do you follow uh, Russell and and uh, Whitehead in in uh, logicism? Would you say that that math is is reducible to logic? Then. Well, I think it's. Uh, I think the original logicist program has really fallen into disrepair since um, Gödel's incompleteness right. proved. Because one of the hopes was that um, the whole of mathematics would be would get to be provable by being reduced to logic. Mm -hmm. So in logic, there was a clear notion of proof. And I think both Frege and Russell, the two great logicists, um, were hoping that um, not only would they be able to define mathematical concepts in purely logical terms, 
that's a project which arguably has succeeded. Mm. Um, but they fail to provide proofs of mathematical truths in purely logical terms. Yeah. And that's a project which has been shown to be impossible. So yeah. that, that part of it is down the tubes. So okay. I, I just take the conventional view here that, that logicism has failed. Okay. And um, so it was interesting, and there was a lot to be learned from it, but it didn't achieve what its founders wanted to achieve. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that 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 sounds right. And uh, especially, I was just reading on Kurt Gödel earlier this year, and uh, his appropriation of of a liar paradox type type move in order to to demonstrate his his uh, incompleteness theorems is is wild, and it's far beyond me. Um, but before we get into to too much more technical stuff here. Uh, Mark, I just wanted to find out how did you get into philosophy, and then how did you decide this is what you wanted to do professionally? Well, when I was at school, which in England means high school, more or less, <laughs> um, I I did for my my specialised in uh, history, French, and English, but I didn't really want to do any of those subjects at university. It was assumed I would go to Oxford, and quite how that got into the story. I don't remember any conscious decision. Because, <laughs> you know, the sun would come up tomorrow, and then when I left school, I would go to Oxford. Um, so when I arrived, I had to make a choice of what uh, degree to um, enroll for. So I didn't want to do any of those. But there was this degree that I hadn't actually really heard of before I arrived, PPE, Politics, Philosophy and Economics, or mm -hmm. sometimes called Modern Grades. It was meant to be a, a general degree that would equip you to rule the empire or something. <laughs> um, anyway, I hadn't done any of those three subjects. I didn't even know what philosophy was. Um, I had a vague idea of what politics and economics were. So it just sounded fun and mm -hmm. turned out to be fun with philosophy the most the most fun of the three subjects. Yeah. Well, amen to that. I, 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 uh, I follow you there. And I've, I've also seen it as kind of a, uh, a backdoor to understanding a lot of other disciplines. If you can, if you can kind of wrap your head around some of the basic philosophical concepts, then you have a shorthand or you have a, a an easier way getting into other mathematics and uh, physics and other things like that. Not that it's uh, super easy, but, but having some kind of philosophy has helped, uh, me learn other different disciplines. I think philosophy, at least the way it's done in in so-called um, tradition of analytic philosophy, the kind of philosophy that's mostly practiced in England, America, Australia, the Anglophone mm. countries. If you can't be clear, you can't do anything. Yeah. Um, if you can't organise your thoughts in a systematic way, then there's nothing you can do in the subject at all. Mm -hmm. So not all philosophy is like that, but the kind of philosophy I've done is like that. And that does give you um, a general intellectual capacity, capacity for um, thinking clearly, setting out your thoughts in a reasoned and organized way, yeah. um, avoiding distractions, um, not losing your way, not losing your thread. And this is actually valuable in any subject. <clears throat> I mean, I wouldn't think that, well, Maybe it helps with formal subjects like mathematics, but it also helps with everything, even <clears throat> even history or, or something you might not think philosophy would be valuable for, mm. just because it, it gives you this method of systematic thinking. So students often remark that their philosophy courses have helped them with their other courses, and I, I believe them. It seems, it seems quite natural that this would be so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I found it to be uh, yeah, eminently, yeah, eminently uh, practical. practical. Um, but also, um, also, I love the, I love the uh, abstract. I love going going deep into into abstract uh, concepts. That that is really fun. And so some people kind of poo 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 that. But a lot of your work, you know, your work on paradoxes is to take up these questions that we ask maybe when we're kids or or first presented uh, in in philosophy one hundred and one. Uh, you know, ship of Theseus kind of questions, and you go in and you give a, a rigorous analysis of, and, and so also um, thinking about non-existent things. You know, some people might just go, "Oh, that's we, let's not worry about that. Let's get back to you know the concrete." But I, I love that you go, you answer the question. You say, "No, this is a, a question worthwhile. This can help in the whole project of of human learning." So let's take this up. So I really appreciate that the type of philosopher that you are. Um, before we get into paradox, I just want to ask a couple just random questions about logic, uh, just to just to get your thoughts on it. Um, where 
thinking of like the, the metaphysics of, of logic is logic. Uh, we, we, you talked about its relation to mathematics um, and, and language as well. Is, is there a platonic realm where the laws of non-contradiction and, and, you know, bivalence, those kind of things exist? Or what, what do we make of logic itself? That's a rather deep question. Um, yeah. Um, I mean, humans make it up, but they don't make it up just freely. And it's mm-hmm. no good saying, well, my logic contains uh, some uh, law of contradiction or something. Yeah. Well, the words came out of my mouth, but then I remember there is a famous logician with, uh, with followers who, who does actually have a logic, has constructed a logic in which some contradictions are true, namely Graham Priest. Yeah. And that's very distinguished, and his uh, views on this matter are taken very seriously by, yeah. by who considers logic. So uh, your question might be, uh, does that mean he's misread what's going on in the Platonic universe, or that we have misread what's going on in the Platonic universe? So I don't think it would be helpful to answer a hmm. yes to those questions. Hmm. I think it would be more helpful to say, well, what's the logic for? Um, and will it serve its purpose? Hmm. So, but, um, um, so one of the things, for example, that Graham, one of the points that Graham makes is that the database may contain a contradiction. Uh, you know, you collect your data, you, you know, there's absolutely tons of it. And you don't notice there's a contradiction. You don't want your database, back, uh, and in classical logic, from a contradiction, everything follows. Yeah. You don't it's want an explosion. Yeah. Into, yeah, into mm-hmm. just having all propositions. So that um, um, a paraconsistent logic, is, which is what a priest calls uh, a logic which allows for true contradictions and which doesn't accept this, as you say, the, the law called explosion, um, has uh, actual practical applications. Well, if you're building a database and that's the kind of logic you want, you shouldn't mm-hmm. be thinking. Does this correspond to how things are in a platonic abstract universe? Yeah. You should just be thinking, does this do the job I want? So I think I'd rather refocus the, the question on utility rather than the matching of abstract metaphysical structures. Yeah, that's helpful. So so the system the system can contain a, a contradiction, but that doesn't necessarily mean that now you've changed this platonic realm or that there is a platonic realm, but that, you know, it's, it's yeah, for utility, using it for different purposes. Okay. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, well, so I wanted to jump in on, on paradoxes and just ask you, uh, what, what made you decide to take up this project of paradoxes? Well, I, I do actually remember. Um, I was having a conversation with a fellow philosopher, a fellow graduate student, actually. It was long ago in Oxford. His name is uh, is Roger Fellows. This is maybe the first time I've had the opportunity to acknowledge his influence. Huh. He said, wouldn't paradoxes be the, a good way to introduce people to philosophy? Yes. Because after all, they grab your attention, and yet they involve a lot of quite difficult philosophical stuff. And um, that thought just reverberated for a while, and then eventually I thought, well, I think I, I, I think I'm ready now to turn this into into something concrete. And so that was the idea, that was the plan behind the book, that was the thinking that it would be a way to introduce people to philosophy, um, because the paradoxes sort of tend to grab one's attention, and then and then before you know where you are, you you get interested in arguing about them and then 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 you're doing philosophy yeah i i had the same uh intuition uh before i i read paradoxes i was reading uh russell's problems of philosophy and i thought you know introducing students to philosophy through the problems sounds like a great idea for the same reasons you just said because it it grabs them once you know once you get past thinking it's pedantic uh you you go oh wait actually i'm not sure i'm not sure about this let me think and then you can introduce them to uh epistemology and metaphysics and you just take different uh problems and then i i found the most uh interesting some of the most interesting uh, most of the most interesting problems were paradoxes and then i read your book and saw that's what you were doing and you had all these great questions that that you stuff in there and say hey think for yourself really quick before you go on to read this the answer I give, what do you think? How do you answer this? And I thought that's just the perfect way to teach philosophy. And so I, I was really appreciative of that. And uh, I used this book in uh, when I was co-teaching a, an undergrad class in philosophy. So it's been really, really fruitful for me to, to use your work here. 
That's right. Yeah. Well, and I thought maybe um, you talk about a scale from from one to ten, I believe, of, of difficulties, and you just I don't I don't know that that's scientific. You just say let's let's give a scale of one to ten, and uh, you you say some are some are easier and some are harder, and this book uh, I believe starts with the the easier ones uh, and then moves to to the hardest. Is that right? Yeah, roughly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought maybe we could just cover a, a couple of them and uh, we could do a podcast on each one of these. So for the, the listeners know, you know, we're not gonna be able to cover all of his thoughts on each one of these, each one that would take forever. But um, Mark, can you help us with, so I thought I picked out easy one uh, as the Sicilian barber paradox uh, hmm. and then a medium, the racetracks, racetrack paradox, and then the hard, the liar paradox, which we have to be careful with. So we don't go insane. <laughs> but um, can you just introduce us? What, what's the what's the barber paradox? So um, the question is: um, Is there a barber who shaves all and only those people who do not shave themselves? Mm-hmm. And um, the thought is, or the question that that raises is: Well, who shaves the barber? Because he's meant to shave anyone who doesn't shave himself. So if he does shave him, if he doesn't shave himself, then he does shave himself. But he's meant not to shave anybody who shaves himself. So if he does shave himself, he doesn't shave himself. So um, <clears throat> there's actually a contradiction there. So what we've got is something that doesn't sound, doesn't on its face sound contradictory. No, I was, uh, I was exploring some villages in Sicily, and you know it's amazing. Even these tiny villages have a have a barber's shop. And one of these barber shops, I found a barber who shaves all and only those people who don't shave themselves. And that's why, that's why he was there, um, to shave the people who don't shave themselves and only to shave those people. So it doesn't sound as if I've said anything contradictory. Right. Mm-hmm. When you come to figure it out, you realize there's actually a contradiction there. But it's, um, it, it's not a deep paradox in a way because we're happy to say, Oh no, there's no such barber. You you made a mistake. Yeah. As far as the villagers go, he shaves all and only those who don't shave themselves. But I mean, as far as the villagers apart from himself go, he shaves. But um, you can't actually make it universal because because he's he's bound to be an exception. Um, And there's no there's no deep problem there. We think, fine, you know, okay, there's the barber I described doesn't exist. There couldn't be a barber who shaved all the so, so that's why it's not that's why it's a, a low level or an easy paragraph yeah. if it's zero as in or one as its degree of <laughs> <laughs> okay but we get to, we get to, by the time we get to the racetrack we're into serious difficulties yeah. so. right well uh i i don't remember i want to associate that with russell is that does that come from russell the the um barber paradox or um, he almost certainly mentions it, but I think it goes back much, much further. Okay. Um, a lot of these paradoxes go back to um, before the Christian era. Um, sure. Plato and Aristotle, or before them, because, you know, after yeah. all, one of the most famous paradox paradoxes was, uh, I don't know, some hundreds, at least a hundred years before Plato. Um, so, you know, he's... he's Firmly pre-Socratic, I think. Yes, you know, yeah. Okay. I would think there's no Barber's paradox there, but something structurally similar. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we can just say, hey, look, there's there's no Barber that does that. You have to. He has to exempt himself. That's not that hard because we can just pause it. We can. Well, we can demonstrate because it's a it's contradictory. There is no Barber. It doesn't affect our life. But then we get into the racetrack problem, and this one's a little bit trickier a little bit uh more difficult to just slough off so can you can you lay out the uh racetrack paradox for us so um the racetrack has a beginning point and an end point now to get to the end point you have to get halfway to the end point but um once you've got halfway to the end point you've got another task lying ahead which is to get to the halfway point between your original halfway point and the end point mm-hmm. and it looks as if then you've got an an infinite series of um, going to halfway points, mm-hmm. but none of these halfway points is the end point itself um, because it's only halfway to the end point. Right. From however far along, there's still halfway to go between where you are and the end point. So you never get to the end point. Mm-hmm. So this is something we can't just say, oh, yeah, you come think about it. 
we never do get to the end point. You, know, you can't do the same thing as you did for the barber and say, right. oh, you know, there's no such barber. Um, what you have to do is to, um, is to think harder. And what you have to think harder about is the relationship between an infinite series like the one we constructed, half of this, half of what results, half of that, and the physical reality of space. Mm-hmm. And that's not so easy. Um, I mean, that's actually quite, quite difficult. And the general question is, how does physical space map onto the abstract mathematics that we bring to bear here? Uh, and it's not very, it doesn't sound anything very super elevated in the way of mathematics. We're just doing half of a distance. Right. But you're doing it again and again. And so the notion of infinity is creeping in here. And that's that's the source of the problem. Yeah, yeah, and and it does get. I I love that you brought in uh, the the difference between space uh, and, and and mathematics there. And and for some listening, you might go, "Oh, yeah, again, we're getting kind of airy fairy." But this is really important if we want to think about mathematics and if mathematics maps onto the world, which it seems it does. But then we have this difficulty here, where it looks like it it may not. So, uh, Mark, how do how do we solve this this racetrack? paradox well <clears throat> we have to think a bit about infinity and that's i mean that's one thing and then as you say we have to think about the relationship between mathematical descriptions and physical descriptions so i'll just say one thing about each of those aspects mm-hmm. so about infinity um many people even people who've had you know recently sophisticated education find it puzzling that um, there are any even numbers, as there are numbers altogether. Right. Um, and it's a very natural reaction to say, but hold on, if you've only got the even numbers, you've left out all the odd numbers. So you can't have as many as if you'd had the odd numbers in. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that that's not the right reaction. But it is a natural reaction. It is a natural reaction to think that if you've left some things out, mm-hmm. you've got fewer than if you hadn't left them out. Mm-hmm. And that seems almost like something that couldn't be doubted. But actually, in the case of infinity, you have to doubt it. So that's one of the issues. And what you've got with the racetrack is an infinite series. And our in- so our intuitions about infinity can mislead us. It's the first point. And then the second point is how, you know, about how you map m- sort of mathematical notions onto the physical world. Um, in the book, I made, a I thought, it was fairly simple observations. You just have a line, uh, you know, a horizontal line. Mm-hmm. Think of it as corresponding to the racetrack if you want it. And let's call the left-hand point A and the right-hand point B. And then you draw a vertical line at some arbitrary position. Mm-hmm. Let's say that the vertical line crosses AB at point X. So, um, And that's a point, a mathematical point. Yeah. So it doesn't occupy, it's a position in space, but it doesn't actually fill space. That's mm-hmm. the thinking behind it. This is the attempt to apply mathematical notions to the physical world. So then you've you've got the question, does X lie in the segment A to X, or does it lie in the segment X to B? You know, Mm -hmm. does it lie in the left-hand segment or the right-hand segment? And um, there's no definitive answer to that question. You just have to make a choice. So the problem is this. If it lies in the left-hand segment, so A to X forms the segment, then what you've got left is a line with no starting point, with no first point. And in physical space, that makes no sense. But Mm -hmm. that's what the mathematics tell you, because um, between any, you know, you've got density here, between any two points mathematically, you've got a third. And so the question is, uh, well, physical space can usefully be understood in those terms. Yeah. The answer is probably not. But then quite what you do next is a more difficult problem. Yeah. That's where the problem arises, really, between any two, you know, it's the, the density, I think it's sometimes called, between any two mathematical points, between any two numbers, uh, are you, you, uh, in the real numbers, you've got uh, uh, another number that is uh, bigger than the one and smaller than the other. Yeah can't really do that for points in space yeah so so um so the, is the answer then that you're, you're if you're thinking about this problem mathematically um then 
you're you're thinking about the wrong way to to apply that to to our concept of of space. So you, obviously you can run a racetrack, but maybe mathematically it seems like you you wouldn't be able to. Um, I think perhaps the way to put it is the mathematical way of thinking doesn't help you understand what's going on. Yeah. Because if you think of um, if you think of it as this this infinite series of halfway points, then the end point is not a member of that series. Right. You never get to it. So um, if you thought, well, the way to understand running is in this mathematical way, you know, you're halving the distance and halving the distance and halving the distance, then you'd understand running in such a way that you could never get to your destination. That is not a great way to understand running. So, um, so, so don't understand <laughs> that way. <laughs> don't think of it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, Mark, um, from from crossing from from going from point A to B, if I'm walking or if I'm running on a racetrack, would you tell people that you're crossing an actual infinite, or would you just say, "Don't don't"? I think, think that's the reason you can say. I mean, here I may just move my hand across your your screen. Yes, I mean, uh, if you're into points, then there's only one answer to how many points I move my hand through, namely mm-hmm. an infinite. Yeah, of course. Okay. I also move my hand through just two feet. Yes. Uh, uh, once you start thinking mathematically, of course, there are an infinite number of sub yeah. regions, indeed, within a two foot region. Yeah. So, yes, in some sense, you've done something infinite, infinite, amazing, okay. so easy to attain the infinite. Yeah. Just move your hand. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think that's that's really helpful, and in, in reading your your section on this was helpful because it it kind of helps you um, look look out for an equivocation between you know physical space and, and and mathematical conception of space, and you say, look, I, I'm crossing an infinite, or I have crossed an infinite, and or or it's impossible to move, and yet we're moving, and so well, yeah, but you've you've changed terms, you've changed from physical to mathematical space now back to physical, and that's why it looks so insane to us. Does, does that seem right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Okay, perfect. All right, great. All right, so so we're 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 making some headway here, and now we're getting to uh, the the hard problem, the hardest problem, the the liar paradox. And this is this is uh, especially dangerous because it caused at least the the premature death of of Philetus of of Kos or Kos. Yeah. And uh, I thought I thought maybe we could we could couch it a, a particular way for the listeners, um, as all podcasters are always liars, um, because I'm a podcaster and I'm telling you that. Right, right. So if what you say is true, then it's false. And um, of course, we need it to be the other way. I can't see that right at the moment. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think the simplest version is this very sentence is not true. Mm-hmm. And the reason like this, supposing it is true, um, uh, since it says that it's not true, it's not true. Uh, if it's not true, then since it says that it's not true, then it is true. Yeah. So if it's true, it's not true. And if it's not true, it is true. So this is a contradiction. You know, it's very, it's a very deep, it's a very deep problem, I think. I don't think I can give you um, anything like a solution, yeah. Um, yeah. even if I had many hours of podcasting. <laughs> because <laughs> I don't really know how to do it but I think I think I know sort of where the problem lies and that mm. is that not every sentence that makes sense um, can be evaluated as, as true or false yeah. and for some reason that it's hard to specify properly this very sentence is not true is one of those it's one of those sentences that you can't evaluate for truth or falsehood so of course there are plenty of plenty of sentences like commands that you can't evaluate for truth or falsehood. So where you know this is not a complete wild notion. Yeah. But there are also sentences which can't be evaluated for truth or falsehood because they they lack some sort of intelligibility condition. Mm-hmm. So um, Chomsky gave a famous example which he thought couldn't be evaluated for truth or falsehood, namely green ideas sleep furiously together. Yeah. Personally, I don't think that's a great example of, of what we're talking about, because mm-hmm. I think it's false, those green ideas. 
sleep first. Get out green ideas, don't do anything because there aren't any green ideas. But anyway, that's just a personal opinion. It's easy yeah. enough to come up with sentences that are, that are nonsensical, you know. Oz Brillig and the Slithy Toes, the gyre and the Gimbal in the Wave. So it sort of sounds like a sentence, but you know you can't. The question, is it true or false? You should just say, that's a question that doesn't arise. Yeah. And then for the latter, what you'd need is a nice account of, of how sentences work and how indeed how truth works, which enables you to treat this sentence as not true, like Twas Brillig and Slithy Toes, i.e. as a sentence uh, with respect to which you don't have what's necessary to make evaluating it for truth or falsehood appropriate. Yeah. Okay. So um, one one worry that I've had in, in thinking through this myself, so I I really like the work of uh, Boss Van Frossen on this, and he appropriates uh, Peter Strassen's notion of, of presupposition. And he says, well, this is, this is just a failure of presupposition. And um, so, yeah, it, but – but in in appropriating the Strassonian presupposition, he is forced. Maybe he's not forced, but he he does give up uh, bivalence and says, "Well, then, yeah, not every sentence is true or false." Do we do we have to give up bivalence if we say that the liar paradox that sentence is is neither true nor false? Or you said commands are neither true nor false. So, yeah, giving up bivalence is not such a big deal uh, if it okay. just means saying the sentence, it, there are sentences which are neither true nor false. So um, bivalence would be problematic if it's formulated more on these lines. There are some fully intelligible, you know, non-defective sentences which are neither true nor false. Okay. And if you lack presupposition, then you're not a non-defective sentence. You're a defective sentence. Yes. That's why you're neither true nor false. So it's not really um, giving up bivalence in the way that an intuitionist say would... would um, would be pleased with. Um, yeah. would want you to give up bivalence, not with respect to some defective sentence, but with respect to some perfectly decent, ordinary sentence. Yeah. So um, thinking through this a little bit more, it, is there no propositional content to the liar paradox? And, and maybe... That's the idea, yeah. Okay. So it seems... Some, yeah. Right, yeah. It's a... It's a, it's a a faux, a faux proposition or something. And so, yeah, it gives the appearance of having propositional content, but it doesn't. And thus we could still have bivalence concerning propositions, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Okay. All right. Using that terminology, then uh, the um, shape of the solution to our paradox is that the paradoxical sentences don't, don't express propositions. Yeah. But then the hard work comes for giving (laughs) something theory of the conditions under which sentences do or do not express propositions. Right. And I'm not pretending to have anything <laughs> like that. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, all that to say, uh, I recommend uh, I recommend Mark's book here. It's called Paradoxes, uh, and it's in its third edition. Is there any is there any goal to make a fourth? Is that on the uh, horizon at all? Or? I haven't heard anything from okay. you know, Cambridge just suggested each of the subsequent, you know, the second and third editions, that, that was yeah. their idea, and they haven't, they haven't proposed it. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I wanted to finish our, our conversation with paradoxes, or on paradoxes, with the ship of Theseus, because it's came back up into pop culture through, uh, I don't know how much uh, philosophers are aware of pop culture and Disney Plus shows, but there's a show, WandaVision. Have, have you heard of WandaVision at all? I have not. Okay, um, it's it's based off of a um, it's it's based off a superhero uh, comic book, and uh, the paradox comes up uh, where this robot AI is talking with himself, and he's talking about the ship of Theseus, and so everyone online is talking about the ship of Theseus, and I thought, you know, the guy who wrote the book on paradoxes, you know, we gotta we gotta at least ask him. Um, yeah. So so can you lay out the the ship of Theseus paradox for us? So it goes like this: Theseus had a ship, and um, he uh, was a commercial sailor, so he took people on he took people on trips, and uh, he transported cargo and so on. And he was wheeling around the Mediterranean. And during the course of these activities, his ship uh, got damaged in various ways, and the planks rotted and things. So one by one, he replaced the damaged parts. But unbeknownst to him, 
some avid collector, the sort of person who's very interested in the original this and the original that, collected the parts of the ship. And eventually, um, he had a complete ship because every part of the ship had been replaced at one time or another. We could imagine this taking 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And the Mediterranean is pretty tough on ships. It's a, it does a lot of damage. Yeah. Um, so what the collector then did was to reassemble the parts that he had. So now it looks as if we've got two candidates for being the ship of Theseus. Um, but um, intuitively, there ought to be only one ship. So we ought to make a decision and say that one is the real ship and the other is not. So what we've got is um, um, Theseus. Theseus went on sailing his ship, so there was a, a continuity of purpose yeah. and function. But there wasn't a complete continuity of, of um, composing material. And the collector had continuity of composing material, but no continuity of function. Mm-hmm. So you've got two different ways in which one can think of the ship of Theseus as having survived. Yeah. It survived in Theseus's hands as a functional entity. It's still the same, still doing the same job. Survived in the collector's hands as a purely material entity. So you can make this into a paradox by uh, saying that, on the one hand, um, the original ship is the ship that Theseus is now sailing and also, the original ship is the ship that's in the collector's museum. Yeah. But the ship in the collector's museum is distinct from the ship that Theseus is now sailing. So you've got a contravention of what we call the transitivity of identity. You've got two distinct things, the collector's ship and Theseus's ship. They're, they're distinct because one's in the museum and the other's still applying the waters of the Mediterranean. Being claimed both to be identical, both of them, to be identical yeah. with the original ship of Theseus, but two things can't be identical to one. So you've got that, that's the way to present it as a paradox. I think. Yeah. Well, um, before we before we try to answer it, where, where does this lie in your opinion on the one to ten difficulty scale? Well, um, I'm not quite sure about that. <laughs> I mean, I personally find it uh, quite easy to give up the idea that you've got identity here. Uh-huh. But I think that's rather um, that may be rather a personal view, and other people may find it harder to give up the idea you've got identity. Certainly, the if you look at the history of the recent history of the discussions by mm-hmm. people like David Wiggins and um, yeah. other distinguished writers, I think Carol Newman wrote about this too. I mean, lots of people have written about it. Um, uh, the idea that I personally favour has not. Um, I think not um, receive much attention. So <clears throat> I regard it as a case of fission, and fission is is sort of puzzling. But on the other hand, it, we know it's something we have to live with, because if you plant a daffodil bulb, it undergoes fission. Yeah. Plant a bulb in November, and you come back in January, and where there was one, there are now two. But it's not that the original bulb has died. Yeah. There's no corpse. Um, I think that happens with twins, with, with certain types of twins as well. Oh, in the, um, yeah, I think you're right. In the, um, in the um, division, in the similar division that occurs in the yeah. air. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's not an uncommon process in nature um, and also in non-nature too, because if you think of a road that divides into two and... Um, it, it, uh, so th- you just think of the uh, of a Y, uh, a, a letter Y that yeah. represents the roads, and there's a sense of one road becomes two, um, and um, so we're sort of. I mean, fission is quite a common phenomenon, and right. it is puzzling, but but I think we just have to lump it. And that's what we have to say about um, we should compare the ship of Theseus to a daffodil bulb, in my view. Okay. Um, so that's the way to come to terms with it. But as I say, I don't think that's the favored. I don't think that's the most co- anything like the most common way in the literature. Well, yeah, and, and since it hasn't been treated, uh, as you said, it hasn't been treated um, all that systematically. Maybe, maybe this is the next work. Uh, you know, daffodils and and theseus or something. Uh, that's right. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I guess we could say, yeah, the the boat has fissioned off into two, and so you just you just say uh, Theseus, ship of Theseus A and ship of Theseus B. You say, well, which one is the ship of Theseus? And you say, well, depends on what you mean by that. Do you mean the one that's continuous with the ship and it's a meteorological hole that's taken on new planks, uh, or do you mean the historical one that he used on that one mission or that one trip? Uh, indeed, would be one way to put it. Um, I, I, I would prefer, I mean, depending who my question was, I would um, prefer being a bit starchier and saying this is a case in which one thing has become two. Okay. So it doesn't really make much sense. I, I mean, I don't really disagree with what you said. I mean, that was, that, that was, your answer would be a more helpful and explanatory answer. <laughs> <laughs> but I think my answer is sort of more technically correct. Yeah. Um, there's something wrong with your question because we've got two things here, but they were they were one thing at one point. Yeah. Okay. That is that is different. That's I have to think about that. Yeah, I really I like that. It's intriguing. I'll yeah, you gotta write the book now. Um <laughs> <laughs> well actually before we go on, I wanted to talk about um I think this will lead into your work on concepts. So is our concept of the uh, ship of Theseus is that vague or is the ship itself a vague object or, or maybe both? Can we can we, can you talk about vagueness those here? Those are all difficult questions. And I'm <laughs> not sure what I think about most of them. Okay. Um, so, of course, I do think there are some concepts that are vague. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, concept tool is a vague concept. So, some time against there being vagueness in concepts. So, that is one approach that's been taken to um, the ship of Theseus. It's to say the concept of identity is vague. And that's generated a huge literature. People have uh, discussed that um, pro and con. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, one could do a nice little collection of papers actually on on people who who have discussed that issue. So, so that is one option. I, I'm not very enthusiastic about it myself because I prefer this fission story where you don't need you don't need to invoke vague, the vagueness of identity, which is a very controversial uh, issue. Right. But um, but it certainly is on. It's it's out there as uh, as something that deserves. To be thought about. Yeah. Well, man, that, that that could work in your favor even more so that we don't have to get into the morass of the uh, vagueness problems if we just look at your uh, fission answer. So may, I'm just, I want to motivate it even more. This is great. If, if you guys are listening, uh, send them an email and, and give them that book proposal. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. But, uh, uh, nobody should think that fission is a completely straightforward <laughs> One thing comes to, whoa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, okay, so I wanted to move on uh, as we finish up here into uh, your, your most, most recent book, uh, Thinking About Things, and uh, talking about – I love thinking about concepts. It's, uh, it's in my mind right now. Well, yeah, it's in my mind because it's a concept as well, but uh, – and non-existent things. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I – yeah, I just want to – I want to get in. So uh, before we before we jump in, you, you said that your whole – in the in the beginning of your book, you said the whole book is kind of predicated on or inherent to your project is a representational theory of mind, and I just wondered um, how, how important is that theory uh, if we wanted to appropriate your your work? Must one adhere to a representational theory of mind, or can you be like a a functionalist, whether whether that's different or behavioralist or or dualist or, or some other stripe? Oh yeah, I think you, so. By representationalist, I, I was just really picking up um, the idea as it was used in in Fodor, you know, years ago, 30, okay. 40 years ago, um, <clears throat> which doesn't actually commit you, by the way, uh-huh. to um, uh, views about um, dualism, physicalism, <laughs> or functionalism, or behaviorism. <clears throat> it's pretty non-committal, I think, in, in those respects. So it's just the view that <clears throat> thinking is essentially representing. Yeah. That's what it does. And... Um, Maybe it's more. It would be perhaps more controversial if one added that perceiving is also representing. Mm. Uh, that's something that perhaps not it's not universally accepted. But really, all I need for the book is that um, thinking thinking is representing. I think I maybe yeah, so. I do take that for granted. Yeah. Okay. But, yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. That that works well. Um, so your book, uh, in your book, you're, you're talking about how to think about things. And you ask, uh, how can we think about things that do not exist? And you have this amazing quote. And again, I should mention, you're you're a, a fun writer, too. Yes, we're talking about abstract things, but it's fun because you you just have a really great writing style. So I appreciate it. But And here's a here's a demonstration. There being no things we are thinking about does not mean we are not thinking about things. And it's a, we'll talk about paradox, but the, uh, so I thought, oh. <laughs> right, right. So um, maybe we could talk about uh, this puzzle about unicorns. Um, yeah. can, can, can you just lay out the puzzle about unicorns for us? Yeah, well, I love unicorns. So um, we can think about unicorns. Everyone agrees with that. Mm-hmm. And then you might think, um, well, if we're thinking about unicorns, we're thinking about something. And if we're thinking about something, doesn't that mean there's something we're thinking about? So what could the something be if we're thinking about unicorns? It could only be unicorns. So it looks if we've got proof of the existence of unicorns. Yeah. If we're thinking about unicorns, we're thinking about something. So there are unicorns we're thinking about. Um, now, there has to be something, something has to have gone wrong because there aren't any unicorns. So um, the project of the book, in a way, was just to uh, explain what went wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so interesting because... W- if if you were to take that thought and say, okay, I have a concept of unicorn, and so there must be, is that is that called quantifying over? Did we just quantify over unicorns? Is that the right terminology? That is exactly the right terminology. So so what 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 occurred was um, um, uh, a quantification. Uh, if we're going to if we're using technical language, yep, jump on in into an opaque position. Okay. So when you say I'm thinking about unicorns, that's what people call an opaque position um i won't perhaps i won't try and say why it's called that but quantifying into it is a bit weird weird as 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 the example shows um because one can think about unicorns without there being any unicorns one's thinking about mm-hmm. um and there are unicorns i'm thinking about quantifies into the opaque position but i'm thinking about unicorns doesn't quantify into an opaque position the quantification is within the opaque if there is quantification, I'm thinking about some unicorns. The quantification is then within the big position. Yeah. Uh, so that sort of technical distinction in semantics, I guess, is um, is uh, um, very important to getting your metaphysics right. Yeah. Because if you don't um, if you don't get your semantics right, you'll find yourself committed to there being unicorns, which seems to me you shouldn't be committed to. Yeah, and all sorts of other uh, wild stuff, and it, and it has it has implications too for you know if you're a proponent of like an Anselmian ontological argument or something like that. That it, it has, uh, yeah, it, it's got its fingers in a lot of different pies here. Um, just a, a thought that that popped up can can you have a con can you have a concept of like a square circle? So that's a, a different type of of non-existent, right? Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You've just uh, you've just put that concept on the table, or I should say, in the podcast. Um, okay. All of your listeners are now exercising the concept of a square circle. Okay. Okay, and so um, yeah, so you say that represent uh, representations are not uh, not what we they're what we think with and they're not what we think about. So we don't like think about representations. They're the the tools. I think you say. Okay, so um, when I have this concept of unicorn, concepts concepts are representations for you, uh, and I, I think you're right there. Yeah. So what is it representing? Because nothing. okay, uh, nothing is one answer, and unicorn is another. Okay, but they're both true. Yeah, because it is like no thing; it doesn't exist. We're not quantifying over. Um, where where does that concept of unicorn sorry to go back to the platonic realm type stuff but where does that concept of unicorn exist is that just instantiated in, in everyone who has the concept or is it somewhere else um well yeah, it's not it's not really located um <clears throat> so the the concept the concept is an abstract thing which is realized in thinkers when they exploit mm-hmm. or exercise the concept um so yeah so you put the concept in in the third realm, if you want, or, you know, Plato's, <laughs> what do people call it? The Plato-plasm, if you, uh, yeah. you want to locate. Okay. 
the concept itself. But what matters is human beings exercising the concept. And those are, those are actual events in the world. Yeah. Um, okay. And so, yeah, I have, I have a hard time with, with sorry, I, I really, I do think about the, the uh, Plato sphere or whatever uh, a lot. Because <clears throat> if you just, if I just made up a concept, if you and I worked together here and we made up a concept, uh, we made it up, we wouldn't be like, I guess they'd have to, a, a, a really hardcore Platonist would have to say, we didn't make it up, we discovered it, or we picked it out of the realm. And so I just have a hard time, a, a concept uh, formation, I guess. Well, I think th- there are real questions about concept formation, um, but don't depend on whether you're a Platonist or not about okay. the metaphysical nature of concepts. So you might ask, where does the, how do we acquire the concept of a unicorn? Mm-hmm. And the standard answer has been that it's a complex concept in which you put together um, a notion for unity uh, in the uni bit and a notion for a, a horn in the corn in the corn bit. You mm-hmm. put those concepts together, and, and that fashions the concept, the complex concept, unicorn. So it is. It was part of the um, project in the book mm-hmm. to say that that account won't work. Uh, it certainly won't work in all cases. And then um, then the question is, well, what's the right account? And I'm not sure if there's anything all that systematic to say. It seems to me very clear that we can just manufacture concepts sort of to order. Um, you know, I wonder what's around the corner. You're approaching a blank corner. You can't see what's around the corner. Mm. Well, the imagination can, at that point come up with all sorts of things. So, you know, it could be something boring like a car or something more interesting like a dragon or uh, something local. <laughs> At that point, you can you can fashion a concept. And I don't think that fashioning a concept is, is just this putting together bits that it has often been assumed to be. So the old um, empiricist tradition was that there were the, the simple ideas and then you made bubbles of the simple ideas that's where complex ideas come from. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, an inadequate view of, of the um, non, non-simple ideas. Um, so there's quite a lot about that uh, in yeah. towards the end of the book, in fact, in the last chapter, trying to make it plausible that we can um, create concepts without actually knowing whether they answer to anything or even knowing that they don't answer to anything, which is what goes on in fiction. Yeah, um, some forms of fiction, or even just producing a fictional name, you know that that name does not answer to anything. In the real world, of course, you pretend in the fiction that it's answering something, but you know quite well that it doesn't, in fact, answer. In fact, it doesn't answer. It's only in fiction that it answers. So um, there are a lot of interesting questions here about how concepts are formed, and... Um, well, you have to tell a different story for the formation of concepts which don't have reference. Yeah. And so I try to provide a, a unified story in which uh, concept formation does not, uh, is the same sort of thing, whether the concept has a reference or not. So forming a concept isn't just copying something that you've perceived. It's a different kind of intellectual activity. Yeah, and and so uh, the the display theory is is at the heart of, of your book. Um, can can you can you? I know it's a, it's an entire book, right? So so people should go and, and and buy that book as well. So I know we can't go into all the details. Can you just like just briefly sketch your your display theory? Sure, it's a theory about how we describe other people's mental states. What's going on when we describe other people's mental states? And the key idea is a sort of simple idea. What we do is to put their mental states on display. Mm-hmm. So um, you um, you tell me something. Uh, you say it's a lovely day today, which actually is in Austin. And um, I say, well, what Parker told me was it's a lovely day. Now, what is that it was a lovely day doing? Well, I claim it's – I'm not saying it's a lovely day. I'm saying that you said it was a lovely day. I'm not asserting that. It's not part of what I'm, I myself am saying. Yeah. What I'm doing is putting on display what you're saying. 
I'm putting it on display for so, so that someone can figure out, end up knowing what you were what you were saying. Yeah. So uh, this means that I'm not committed to um, it being true. Mm-hmm. Parker said it doesn't follow that. Sorry, it doesn't in general follow that it's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but doesn't follow that it's true. So I'm not committed to the truth. I'm committed to the truth of your saying it without being committed to the truth of what you say. Yeah. And likewise, I'm... Um, you know, not committed to even to the concepts that I put on display having any reference because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you believe in um, in um, creatures from outer space or something, and I don't. But I say, you know, Parker said that a creature from outer space visited him last night. I'm not committed to there being any such things um, because I'm not saying it in my own right. I'm, it's as if I was saying... Uh, let me tell you what Parker did this morning. There are creatures from outer space. <laughs> so it's like a, I go. It's it's as if I was going through a little bit of play acting to yeah. reveal what you what you did. So that's the claim. That's the the thought behind display theory. It's a thought about how we report the mental states of others. Yeah. You report them by displaying them. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. And so the, the display theory is, is like a, a third person, um, yeah, reported speech or part, reported thought type thing. And so, yeah, again, we're not quantifying over, you know, in a, in a reported speech thing. Um, yeah, I still have, a, I still have a, like such a hard time with with like the ontology of like fictional characters. So like um, Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings. Um, we, I have a concept of them, and I, I assume you have a concept of them. Um, that concept doesn't refer to anything, does it? No. Okay, but yet it it kind of still does because, like, we we could both talk about his attributes and stuff. That's right. We can exploit the concept, and we can form meaningful thoughts. And yeah. Of course, we can report the thoughts of others using the concept. Um, now, it's often assumed that for that to be possible, the concept does have to refer to something. And right. so it's what makes people think that um, there really, really are fictional characters. I mm-hmm. mean, that, uh, when you um, say everything that exists in reality you or in other familiar reality, you haven't said everything that exists because you haven't said the fiction, you haven't added in the fictional people. Right. So I reject that metaphysical view. I think there's just the real world. Yeah. Of course, I think there are lots of fictions, lots of stories. And I think that in the stories, there are all sorts of people who don't exist in the real world. But when I say, in the story, there are these people, it doesn't mean that there are these people. Yeah, It just means that there's a story. That's the only reality that you get out of a sentence that begins in the story or according to the fiction, such and such. You're just told how a fiction is. You're not told how reality is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that that's helpful. So, so there's not. Um, so, like, like po- possible world semantics doesn't doesn't tell us about when we say close possible worlds. That's just it's it's a intuition pump, or it, it those are concepts, but they're not they're not actual. They don't have to be actual in order for us to use them as as tools for philosophy. Um, I believe that. Yeah, I believe what we just said. Um, a related point is that some people have tried to characterize fictional characters right. as possibilia, yeah, as possible objects. And some people think that there really are possible objects that are not actual. Right. So David Lewis is the famous exponent of a metaphysics of that kind. Mm-hmm. So I do, in fact, beat up on theories of that kind, (laughs) not just because I don't like the metaphysics, but because I don't think they're adequate to Mm. uh, the um, nature of fiction and how we think about fiction. So I give those reasons in in a different book, which we haven't mentioned, called Fiction and Fictionalism. Um, So I do consider, I call it possibilism, as as an account of the metaphysical character of of fictional characters. It, It is a perfectly good theory, and it's been held by um, no less a person than David Lewis, so that yeah. obviously makes it um, something that has to be taken seriously. Right. 
do argue that it, it doesn't actually work out for sort of detailed reasons. Um, and if you, I mean, I don't much care for the metaphysics, but even if you make no fuss about that, there are detailed reasons why um, it's hard to think of fictional characters as possibility. Yeah, I'll have to grab that book because that that I'm I'm very interested in what you're you're saying there, and I think just a, as a practical note, it, it's kind of weird to to it kind of diminishes the role of the author, of the fictional author, and saying, well, they didn't create Harry Potter; they picked out you know they picked out a possible world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's certainly true that, uh, on my view, you do full justice to creativity. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you, one of the points I make actually in the book is that on the possible worlds view, um, you're, you're, you're a, a discoverer, not a creator as an mm. author. You scan the worlds and you <laughs> decide what would be interesting. And yeah. you pick that out. That seems completely the wrong picture of how um, creativity works in, in yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so one last question here as we close out. Um, do you have a particular concept or a particular theory of concept formation, um, like simplicator? So, like, uh, do we do we come with innate concepts built in, or do they emerge? Like, is it a historical um, emergence or like an, an abstractionism? Have, have you given much thought to how we get our first concepts? <clears throat> well, I certainly should have done. I don't know if I've given enough thought to it. Um, I don't see any advantage in innateism. Uh, I don't see how that's going to explain anything. Yeah. Because if you think the concepts are innate, you still have to think that there are situations which trigger their activation. But instead of thinking of it as triggering the activation of an innate concept, you can just think of it as the formation right. of yeah. an concept. So I don't. I think just structurally, innateism about concepts is completely unhelpful. Yeah. Um, the details, of course, of how concepts formed are very tricky. They're open to psychological um, investigation. Mm. So, um, as as you know, recent psychologists have spent a lot of time trying to tell us the conditions under which infants form you know, the concept of an object, the yeah. concept of a, a stable object, and so on. So it's all very interesting. From the philosophical point of view, um, I think um, one thing, that I um, do think is worth pointing out is that one way to acquire a concept is from other people. Yeah. And um, I think we do that just by immersion in our linguistic community. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we need definitions or anything. I think definitions are wildly overrated. We just pick up concepts from others. Yeah. And so even the proper names and how do we learn proper names, we just hear other people using them yeah. and we latch onto them. And um, so I think that um, that's an important method of concept formation. Of course, it doesn't really answer your question how the first concept arise. Clearly, perception is playing a part. Mm-hmm. Clearly, something about our uh, innate structure, what we notice in perception, is also playing a part. Yeah. But I don't have all that much to say about further details of how that works out. Yeah. Well, I think... I. I, I totally agree with you on that. And, and I've been reading a lot on, on Donald Davidson's uh, triangulation argument. And I've seen you, uh, you, you, you mentioned Davidson a lot and, and it's, it's what you said, the, the social structure that you have, um, you have a mother or a father, whoever the first teacher is. And they say, look, Parker, this is a, a table. Can you say table? And you sort of form, and you're forming this concept from the, the linguistic community. But he, he does argue that you need full blown, that might not be his language, but maybe one of his students. Full-blown linguistic triangulation, because mere ostension doesn't give you the the precision needed to pick out the uh, aspect of the concept. And so, it 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 seems hard for me then to think about how we ever formed our first concepts before language uh, was used. Well, it must be something to do to so imagine a, a pre-linguistic infant. Um, there must be, I mean, the, the innate faculties must be play a role here because sure. there's some things it's noticed and some things they don't notice very much. Their attention is drawn, say, to moving objects, to coloured objects and so on. Yeah. So we know that um, you know, we, can, we can figure out what's grabbing their, what's grabbing their attention. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, uh, and then they'll uh, start to recognize that um, there can be behavioral evidence that they're seeing something as the same as something they've encountered before. The mother is obviously a, uh, one such thing, and strangers don't necessarily go down well in uh, <laughs> That's right. 
Americans differ a bit, often strangers need to problems. And um, so we know that they are capable of recognition, for example. Mm -hmm. well, recognition is um, uh, consists, or one, one way to recognize is simply to reapply a concept that's already in your possession. Yeah. And um, so even if it's a little overstated to regard infants as doing exactly that right from the word go, one can see that that recognition of capacity is a forerunner of a conceptual capacity in which the recognition yeah. actually involves the application of the same concept. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, Mark, this is this has been huge. Thanks so much for letting me cover such a, a broad swath of your work. Uh, it, it's been really fun. I know my the, the audience is going to love it. Um, and you're you're welcome on any time to talk any of this more or that next book on uh, the ship of Theseus that you're going to have to do. <laughs> uh, th thanks so much for all your time. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. It's been really fun talking to you. Um, it's very stimulating. Awesome. All right. Well, we could talk about this more and, and someday uh, maybe we will, but for now it's going to have to do it. This has been Parker's Pensies and as always, all glory to God.